You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's monthly blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show, we're going to be giving you a tour of Printworks, which is a massive new venue in London's Docklands area that's among the most impressive event spaces we've ever seen. Plus, RA's tech editor Mark Smith will be talking to Peter Kern from Create Digital Music and the artist Dinky about the recent relaunches of classic gear from Roland and Technics. They'll be considering how these companies are handling the legacy of the gear that was so vital in the creation of dance music. But first, we have a new short feature that we're beginning this month called Behind the Track. We're going to be asking artists to tell us the story behind tracks they made that went on to be classics. Ben Clock's Sub-Zero came out almost exactly eight years ago, and this was at a point in time where the dance music world was buzzing about a Berlin club called Berghain, where Clock was a resident DJ. Stories of this wild place were circulating around the globe, and Sub-Zero was thought of as a perfect example of the understated, yet incredibly powerful techno sound that was making the club famous. When I think of that track, I always remember the, the, that uh, moment when my my girlfriend at that time like she came home and i played it to her she kind of looked at things from the outside and gave a really honest response like hey this shit or or yeah this is something and and when i played that to her she was like oh my god this is something like really yeah and and um and that second line that i just talked about this second melody i was like yeah i think it's cool too but what do you think about this other melody on top? Is it too cheesy or is it just the right thing? And she was like, no, it has to be there. So, um, yeah, she helped me that, making that decision. I used to play piano so I did all the sequencing with like playing them first and then looping them the trick was actually that second line that which is like a third on top you know like this bass melody and then the other one which uh, copies it on like like parallel line on top that was kind of the, the aha moment I think also this the sound and the which comes on top this which is actually uh, a field recording which is a uh, paper tearing apart a piece of paper and like with some you know uh, filtering and uh, so it sounds big but that thing on top actually makes really I think the the energy after the break. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I do think that the sound system or the, the dance floor back then definitely had an influence. Like this whole architecture and, and, and yeah, the sound just had um, an influence on how to produce tracks. Like you don't need uh, so many elements or so. You, you know how it will sound there. So you can be quite um, minimalistic with, you know, with the amount of sounds and stuff. I do remember like the first time playing it and and realizing yeah like as expected it is something kind of big but it was I mean it's more like a, a grower <laughs> like you know the more years passed it kind of became bigger and bigger in a way for me because uh, back then it was just a track around like around my album but then after like as time went by it kind of this is the one that kind of just stands out like I said that's the one I'm always asked for so um, maybe now when I play it it's even much bigger than back then with some tracks you you only know after some years if it's uh, what it really is or meant or if it stands for something for an era or something on, on every event there are people um, like showing me their phone and and um, yeah, like that's the one word that's always written somewhere. <laughs> the beat uh, is just—it's kind of the the basis. And if if you want to some yeah, if you want to make something timeless or kind of uh, uh, something recognizable and all that, um, what really lets people fly is is in the end the the melody or. Um, who said that that the the beat is kind of the the male aspect and then the melody is the female aspect on top and you always need the female aspect like to uh, to fly <laughs> this is the hour from resident advisor I'm standing outside Printworks, a huge multi-purpose space in Canada Water in London's Docklands area. It's a part of the city that's ripe for redevelopment and that's exactly what's happening to the building behind me a sprawling 16-acre space that was once a newspaper printing facility, churning out copies of the Evening Standard and the Metro. Some of this site is now going to be used to host parties, and these will be overseen by the promoter LWE, which stands for London Warehouse Events. It's good news for a club scene that seems to be entering 2017 with a kind of cautious optimism, with fabric reopening and a night side dedicated to stemming the tide of venue closures. I first visited Printworks in late 2016 and back then it was very much a work in progress. The site had recently hosted a secret cinema event for the film 28 Days Later and there was fake blood smeared on some of the walls. It's now January and the LWE crew are getting ready to hold their first party at the start of next month. I'm going to go inside now and speak to the three main people behind LWE, Alice Favre, Paul Jack and Will Harold, to get a tour of Printworks and see what they have planned. 
My name's Paul. I'm the marketing director at LWE and one of three owners, I guess, uh, between me, Will and Alice. Um, started six, seven years ago. We first spent time sitting in an office above a pub in Shippers Bush. Will was the uh, bookings director for Matter before before that closed. I was one of the promoters there. We became partners. Um, as the venue closed, Will was looking for someone to play shows. I um, had access to warehouse spaces. And so between the two of us, we kind of concocted an idea of throwing events. Um, our first event was oddly a side chance one, Infected Mushroom. Uh, which moved from matter to to the electric in Brixton. What was the fridge? Uh, and from that point on, was we decided we had a stellar career in throwing parties, um, not particularly well organised. But Alice here was part of the team from day dot. Really, she she kind of helped build it and all the nuts and bolts and. After the first event, it was the first event, I think Alice became a three-way partner with us. Um, we launched our first real warehouse parties uh, in a venue called Great Suffolk Street. Um, now, seven, seven and a half years ago, maybe. Um, first event we launched with was Eric Pritz. Um, it was the first time really a headline artist like that had been moved into the warehouse kind of type of environment where they'd always usually kind of in a fixed venue space or a Brixton Academy or that kind of location, we, we just we thought the idea would be to, to move that across into a stripped back space and to offer the uh, ability to create a blank canvas for that for that artist. And LWE really has, has been a bit more of a kind of a kite mark or a seal of quality rather than um, totally standing for one for one genre. And, and we've moved around bookings wise as as our tastes have changed and developed. And I think that's something that's um, we'll continue to do kind of thing. And, and we, we generally we book things that we're finding exciting at the time and, and are current and we've taken a lot that we've learned along the years out of those first sort of formative steps at, at Great Suffolk Street and through to operating a space like Tobacco Dock we really kind of honed our craft there I felt felt like and, and like became went from being kind of like mid-sized club promoters to being a kind of one of London's leaders in terms of electronic music and, and I think that's why we're sat here today at Printworks is, is that we've sort of proved ourselves in terms of how we operate in these unique spaces and that's really become our, our sort of USP in terms of the, the operational side of things and, and there, it, it does feel like we've, we've reached this point kind of on a, on a really interesting journey and that there's a lot of a lot of kind of chance and circumstance that we are here and it was it was a really old time when we we kind of first got the got the go-ahead we'd known about it for a while but in terms of the project going ahead but it wasn't public yet and then um, we, we nearly lost the whole project when um, with, the, with the kind of at the time the closure of fabric and um, and and that really unsettled a lot of people in that were involved in the project and was this the right thing to be doing and and that kind of thing and so there's been all kinds of hurdles that we've had to that we've had to overcome and but it's with a lot of yeah a, a lot of luck and, and and kind of goodwill and stuff that, that we're that we're that we're here and i think it'll be something that's yeah it's, it's exciting hello i'm alice i'm operations director for lwe um so i'm the one that's the kind of doer out of the three of us i'm the one that actually makes their crazy ideas and turns them into some sort of reality and usually is the kind of pessimist out of all of us and the one saying no sorry that's not possible um so yeah this is this is a walk round tour of the print works in london uh, and this is to kind of tell you about how we're going to use the space and uh, all the different aspects of what's going to be going on throughout the first series of events in here what um kind of stuff does it take to get a a huge uh, multi-purpose space like this up to scratch? Um, there's a lot of different things to think about, mainly a lot of health and safety. 
it's 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 definitely a challenge but in some ways it's less hassle than it would be opening an actual club um, because you're not putting any permanent infrastructure in and you try to make a blank canvas space it means that so long as you make everything safe and you think about the lighting the emergency exits the walkways how the venue's going to flow uh, the rest of it doesn't need to be quite as polished as it might be for a permanent venue there are four massive warehouses that are joined onto the side of the press halls and one of them we'll be using for the entrance for customers to come in. And it's amazing here because we've got the luxury of space. That's another thing about the difference between permanent venues and pop-up venues is that here for a permanent venue you maybe only have a very small smoking area on the street or a small area to do all your processing for searches, ticketing, guest list, all that sort of stuff. Whereas here there's an absolutely giant space I think it's about 20 metres by 50 metres large. Um, in there we can get the queue inside so nobody's standing out in the rain, uh, ticket scanning, then through to searches, and then you come through and choose which direction you go through to the main space. I think that one of the things that I've always looked for in a really in a great club space is that it totally transports you away from reality and it's something that I've, you don't always get and it's something I really felt as I don't know when I was 18 and crawling back up the stairs out of fabric after a marathon session in there it's kind of you you forget that the outside world exists and I really get that with this space it kind of once it, from the outside it's quite innocuous and doesn't look like much but once you're in here it's kind of it's a totally different world and it's I think that's something that's yeah, I think going to be exciting for people. Should we keep going? Uh, once you come off this main space, um, you can either go upstairs, which will take you through to the main rooms, but right now we're walking towards what will be used as the locker area and the toilet area. And we've got the luxury of actual plumbed in toilets. That is, that is legit, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're now sort of slightly striking a hybrid between a permanent venue and uh, an event space that where we where we go in and out and we're used to things being so transient where we have a build process of a day or two and the show day and then we have to get out again and everything's done at kind of a, in a really short space of time because the longer that you're in that space the, the the more it costs you so now we've got the the luxury of being in somewhere permanently and, and kind of create further creating that blank canvas in order to um, yeah, have more flexibility and, and a better service for the customers. Okay, so when we nobody quite believed us when we did the when we did the Junction Two promotion, I don't think anyone actually believed that the main stage was under a bridge. And watching people's faces as they came over the brow of the hill, oh my god, like fist in mouth, I can't believe it. It's the same view as you get looking back over there, just kind of massive expanse in front of you. Uh, right, let's go back in this way. At the moment, this is our workshop. So we've got, I don't know, five or six carpenters working constantly at the moment. Painters and decorators and carpenters getting everything ready. So we're walking into the main space now. Come straight into the area which will mainly be bar and seating. But I think this is one of the prettiest parts. Or well, the most exciting. 
There's a, these are actually the old print, the the old printing machines that were in the venue. So where we're, the floor that we're stood on right now, we've filled in lots of holes with concrete along the floor, and those used to be the ink wells for the actual printing press machines. So there's out of there must have been there was there was eight. So there's what there's two left here. Yeah. So there was eight machines across the two spaces. Um, there's two left. Uh, and these these were what they were sat on. I mean, they're really impressive, quite beautiful, and they're quite a nice blue. They look good. We, I mean, eventually, we'd really love to project onto them, make them like look like they're moving again and like they're in action. That would be quite an exciting thing to do. Uh, so this room will be one massive long bar down one side and down the other side, plenty of seating. I feel like that's something that also other venues or nightclubs forget is somewhere for people to sit. I think it's really important if you're in a space for a long time, you need to be able to feel comfortable on the dance floor, get a really nice drink, but then also be able to sit down and t you know have some chill out time as well and not feel like after say four or five hours that you're tired and that you just want to go home. You want to make this a space that people can stay in for quite a long time. Can you remember that first time you were sort of taught, you went on a tour of Printworks and what your, your first impression was? Did you think you could actually make something work here? We love a challenge. We, we, I mean, really, first thing came in, I was like, it's fucking big. <laughs> it, it looks mental. It's got no sound limits. Um, great, let's do a party. Uh, I don't think we'd even bothered coming up with the idea of what a PNL or a forecast is or how much it's going to cost. Um, for us, it was just kind of like, right, this would be great. Um, reality is obviously we have to make everything else work, but. I think that's been something that's maybe been a part of our evolution along along the way, and it's, you touched on it earlier with Tobacco Dock and and with Junction Two as well. Is that quite often when we've turned up and seen somewhere, it's it's more been about we've just got to do an event here. We like it's going to be amazing. So should we walk over here? This is the actual main room. The dance floor is a total of 100 metres long, which is pretty massive, really, for dance floors as far as they go in England. Uh, but we're not going to be using all of it for the for the first series. I think we're only going to be using about 60 to 70 metres of it, and the width is about 13 metres. So, in theory, you can get the full capacity stood in front of the DJ, um, so that everybody, even, you know, you'll always you'll always have say one sixth of the people that will be wandering around going to the loo getting a drink having a cigarette outside but if at the point when the headliner comes on everybody wants to be able to see him or her then they can all stand on the dance floor and there'll be space and can you describe whereabouts the dj booth is going to be the booth will be about as i said 60 to 70 meters down to the end of the room like where we stood now obviously isn't much help for those listening um but you can see some red and white tape down there and that's as far as the booth will be so it's quite impressive and um, the the great thing about this room as well is that it's completely soundproofed having had eight printing press machines in here going full tilt all day uh, they had to make this soundproof because there are residents around here and um, so we got the luxury of being able to go as loud as we want which is pretty impressive and something that you just don't get in london nowadays so that was the real jewel in the crown i think when we first did sound tests in here about Three months ago, um, we brought the actual L acoustic system that, were, that we're going to use on show days, and uh, and tested it to its full full whack. And yeah, all of us with earplugs in were virtually deaf, and you couldn't hear anything on the exterior. We had noise consultants that were walking around, and yeah, there was not a peep that escaped outside the building. So that's really exciting. 
walking through here now, it definitely sort of has the charm and feel of like an actual newspaper printing facility. How focused were you guys on sort of retaining that kind of original feel and not maybe making too many changes before you opened? It was something that we were very sympathetic to. We wanted to keep as much of the original features in here as possible. The only thing that we've done is really made the venue safe. Um, all of the original features we've left in, there are some really cool digital boxes that we're not really sure what they show, but they look quite cool, <laughs> so we've left them in. Um, lots of pipe work everywhere, uh, but just all the dangerous bits we've made safe, but everything else we've left in as it is. We put, um, we put a post on Facebook the other day actually, uh, showing the whole length of the main room with one guy stood at the end of it and just wrote, how big? Question mark. And I noticed in one of the comments below, somebody said, hadn't you better start turning this into a club now? And I was a bit like, well, that's kind of the point, is that this isn't being turned into a club. This is being turned into a multi-purpose space. And actually, if you fix in a DJ booth or you fix the lights, then there's no room for change or creative, you know, coming up with new and fresh ideas. I think that's the beauty of what we do across all of our projects, across Junction 2, across Tobacco Dock, and, and now Printworks. It means that we were able to change things up and make things exciting, because, you know, why not? If you've got the space, then why not do it? First run of events is they're all going to run from midday till 10 p.m. People can get the tubes home. They can they disperse at a time where um, people are coming out of pubs and restaurants and are on their way home anyway. And I think from my side, looking at musically, I've really enjoyed programming the daytime daytime things. And when I was still working at Fabric, we quite often talked about the the kind of um, those sort of special hours at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and they, they are special but in, in, in a totally different way but I also really like the the energy of, of a daytime party. It's, it's totally different and it's, to, it's a totally unique vibe and, and I think that's something that that has been conscious in my programming kind of thing that there there's a little bit more of a spring and a step and it's, it's, it's not so sort of um, dark and downbeat. It's a lot of it's more kind of up and, and, and there's a bit more of a party vibe and I think that, that makes for an amazing atmosphere on the dance floor. So we're just walking into room two. This is just at the back of the main room, uh, probably holds about three to 400 people. And we'll be inviting some exciting uh, smaller brands to host this room. Room two was a former charge bay. There was lots of kind of automated robots that ran around the, the, the print factory kind of delivering either paper or I'm not quite sure what. And you can see the tire tracks on the floor from where, they, where they've kind of driven over the years and in here in the ceiling above you there's all these little points that stick down and there was an electric charging point and they used to return here at the end of the day to be charged up to drive around the factory again for the next day so yeah it's room two or the charge bay. My name is Larry and my role is engineering technical building manager along with my associate Tommy Gabriel who does the same thing. So we, we do it together, it's a big place. Tell me a bit about what your day-to-day -day role entails and how that's changed since the, um, the buildings, you know, moved from being a, a newspaper printing facility to a multi-purpose art space. Uh, well, it hasn't really changed that much in as much as um, we, we take care of the building when there's a lot of facilities here, so it's facilities management. So it's really, it is the fabric and, and the, 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 the basis of, uh, of what the building needs to have people in it, you know, safety and so on. It was a big difference from printing newspapers, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's incredible what they're doing, it really is. Tommy and myself, we see it as a, 
as what it always was really a lot less noisy and a lot less people with it because used to be at 300 plus um, engineers here but now the different way of viewing it is something which I find amazing that they can look at it and see it in a completely different light whereas I still see the presses and how it used to be um, yeah but it's transforming yeah every day uh, so we're just walking past some of the printing presses and uh, we thought we'd just stop by this. This is this is the actual reel of paper, the last reel of paper that would have been used. Um, and I think it was the one that was printed, used for the evening standard print. If you look down this way, this is like to the end of this room. This is only two machines. It's on four floors and there was eight of these things in here. And they were printing two and a half million newspapers a day. On, a, on an average day, three and a half was quite a busy day, and the day that Diana died was six and a half million newspapers they produced in a day. They used to use something like 30,000 tonnes of newspaper a week. And people just, I think the idea that, it, like, people, it's just, I don't know, kind of blows my mind slightly. There's, these kind of things must be happening in heavy industry all over the place, and it's just it's amazing to be in here and feel that sort of sense of sort of history in a weird way. When we first arrived, it was a bit like the sort of Mary Celeste in some ways, and there's notes and stuff stuck on the wall with people's phone numbers and notes for people's car phones and things like that which is just like real little anecdotes to the history of it all and it, yeah it's been yeah, it's been quite cool exploring it and, and just thinking about how we're going to take it on and give it a sort of a new lease of life. We've just walked into what's known as the quiet havens. It's a lot quieter than everywhere else as you can tell. So quite a lot of these doors and windows are soundproofed. We're essentially in six boxes that hang between the bar area room and the dance floor. Um, these will be used uh, at the moment for artists and guests. Um, but back in the day when this was open as a printing, printing press house, um, it used to be used for the workers. So obviously eight of these machines going constantly all day at sort of 106, 108 dB. You wore headphones all day. It must have been quite a lot for your ears and your kind of brain head to take. So you had these areas called the quiet havens where you could come just take your headphones off, take 10 minutes to relax before you went out back to the busy floor again. So we're now stood up on top of the, uh, the print presses right at the top of the room. The ceilings are nearly 17 metres high in here and we're looking out at um, a crane that runs along the entire length of the room which is used to bring the, the sort of vast printing machines into the space there's a big shutter to our left and the shutter lifts up and so the crane literally dropped like it was built as part of the building so uh, so that you can sort of drag these huge machines in and out and um, yeah they're currently taking some cladding off to expose some girders in order for us to do some rigging um, yeah it's it's like makes my ankles feel, feel a bit funny being up here. So overall, um, where do you feel that Printworks will slot into London's clubbing music landscape in 2017? I think when we first turned, sort of started doing bigger events and bigger daytime shows, um, I think people were a bit nervous. But actually, there's a real kind of uh, it's a bit sort of symbiotic, if you like. That actually, I think the nighttime events are are busier and better for it. And and as long as we kind of, I mean, work with other venues and, and Donna talks about what we're doing and what our dates are and that kind of thing and it, it, it kind of it tends to everyone can kind of rub along together and, and, and work all right and I think that's yeah I mean it, it ebbs and flows and, and it, not everyone's happy all the time but on, on the whole we've got a really great working relationship and I think that that's it's a, it's a positive thing.
That was Aaron Coultate, RA's news editor, being shown around Printworks, London's newest venue. Full listings for what's coming up at Printworks are of course available on RA. Next, I'm going to hand over to Mark Smith, who sat down with Peter Kern and Dinky to discuss how companies like Technics and Roland have handled the relaunch and the legacy of their iconic products. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. Whoa. Today we're going to be talking about how music tech companies have been dealing with the legacies surrounding their iconic products. Uh, Often these products were misunderstood when they were released or were thought of as entry-level or second-tier items at best in some cases. And I think it's fair to say that sometimes these companies didn't always consider them to be successful products. Yet now they have something of like a, an amazing cultural significance that these companies are now able to capitalize on. And we're seeing the re-release of new versions of these iconic instruments that are you know, tailored to the demands of the 2017 market. But there's been, it looks like there's something of a shift in what these products mean and how they're being marketed. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm joined by Peter Kern, a producer and founder of the music tech website CDM, which is something of an independent voice in the online discourse surrounding electronic music instruments. Hi there. Yeah. And we also have Dinky, who played a key role in development of modern house music, I'd say, over the past decade or so. At least six albums over 2012 inches. <laughs> yeah. Just flown in from Mexico to be with us today, so thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> so let's just establish some examples of what we're going to be talking about. And of course, this is a generalized trend in the music tech world. We're just talking about a few specific examples. So I think a good place to start was there was a New York Times article came out earlier this year, which was headlined. A turntable reborn turns its back on its hip-hop legacy. And this was about a turntable called the Technics SL1200, which played a really important role in defining DJ culture in hip-hop and disco house music in the 70s and 80s. And now it's been re-released. But the creative director has said that um, DJs are fine too, but as a marketing target, it's problematic. We don't want to sell the 1200 as the best tool for DJing. And they're also going to cost about four times as much as they originally did. So, to start with you, Dinky, do you think there's something ironic about this that, you know, the people who made this product so significant in its time would essentially not be able to afford it in its new form? I think it's elitist also to just like uh, divide the people who are really rich or who have the money to afford it, um, turntables and then uh, there are a lot of people who can afford $3,000. It's very expensive. But I'm sure the company had his reasons, and you know there's a lot of things we can say, but we don't know inside what's going on. And I think there might be other reasons we we don't really know. Uh, I don't like it, of course. uh, But at the same time, it makes the the classic 1200 a little bit of a... Yeah, mystery and like people keep on looking at it online, used and it's still uh, something fun. But of course I don't like it, but I think Technis had a reason to do it and I guess they have their own reasons and we have to respect that as well. Yeah, because they were discontinued less, less than a decade ago due to poor sales and dwindling supply of parts. 
There you go. <laughs> but um, so Panasonic is the parent company of Technics, and obviously something's changed in their eyes. Do you think, Peter, that this has something to do with vinyl becoming something of a lifestyle product? You know, it's something that you consume in this refined way now. Well, I, I mean, I, I would tend not to read too much into it. Um, I think I think it was kind of clear from when they announced that this thing was coming that they saw it as an audiophile product. So something with a, a really high sticker, presumably lower volume, but higher margin. So it's it's a it's a kind of a twelve hundred in name only in that it's um, it seems to be. It seems to be that they, you know, they took this brand and this this model in a different direction. Vinyl DJing is seems to be healthier than ever. Uh, if the 1,200 sales were kind of suffering, I think that was probably partly because the turntables were all still out there and working and getting repaired. Um, and it seems that Pioneer has stepped in uh, with the PLX. What was it? PLX 1000. PLX 1000. And uh, yeah, I mean, everybody I know who plays those really loves them. Um, some people are even loving them more than the techniques. So it's it's not as if 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 the record players that have techniques on them have turned their back on average DJs. It's not as if DJs have turned their backs on vinyl or uh, DJs don't have options out there and clubs don't have installs sort of ready for DJs to play. Because needless to say that you know. The people who pioneered the the twelve hundred in New York back in the seventies and things like this wouldn't have been able to shell out seven thousand k on a on a pair of these. But who are these? You know, who are the people who are consuming the twelve hundred? This new twelve hundred now. Who are these audiophiles? Oh, yes, audio, in the audio, the strange breed of the audiophile has always been money. kind of a mystery. Yeah, I mean, people. Obviously, you know, there are a lot of people out there with a lot of disposable income, and and I mean, I yeah. I can't really, I can't really fault a manufacturer, you know, whoever it is. Um, I can't fault them for for turning that into a business. And uh, these people like to spend their money on that, and, and they don't care. I mean, and also there's like DJs with a lot of money as well, to be fair, but. Maybe it's not the majority that's gonna spend that money on a turntable. They're probably all playing digital anyway, but they have to spend this tax, you know. Mm. They rather spend money on, on high end gear and audiophile gear than than give it to ta- to the tax man sometimes. So uh, there is a market for that for sure. But I guess it's interesting that these people are kind of um, passively they have a passive uh, relationship with this new turntable whereas the people who were using it in the 70s were pushing it to make it into something that its creators never really intended it to be is that kind of um perhaps indicative of of the present time that now these products which were had like individuals made them revolutionary but now the people who are buying them are essentially just experiencing them in a offhand way you know what I mean? maybe that's more a question for you than for me Nikki. because i mean uh, i mean i i guess i would I, I guess what i would be curious about is what what you think the current state of vinyl dj technique is i mean it um Obviously, we wouldn't go to whatever ex- excessively rich people buying new uh, techniques remakes to figure that out. But I mean, if it seems to me from my my rough experience, if you kind of go and see the latest scratch DJs or uh, you know hang out with your favorite selectors, there's still people doing interesting things with turntables. So the revival of vinyl DJs definitely 
you know, um, making people more aware of the turntables and all this past that comes with it. I kind of watched the initial announcement uh, of the techniques. It seemed to me from the initial announcement like they were going to go in this high-end audiophile serve direction. I, I think I said that at the time, I don't remember exactly. Uh, then the, the actual announcement came out and I, I think I honestly kind of tuned it out because it sort of had gone off into this unaffordable territory, probably not relevant. But I don't know, I mean, is it... Um, it seems like any kind of real-world DJ is now choosing between something like uh, uh, repaired, uh, up-to-date techniques and, and the uh, pioneers. The, uh, the, these pioneers have actually started going, um, started cropping up in the clubs around Berlin, for sure. People seem to like them. I don't even know that this sort of high-end entry is a relevant choice for anyone. Maybe there's some wealthy DJs who are Maybe, like, buying for, them. Yeah, for us and for the industry the club, I don't think so, for sure. No, I mean, like, you're going to drop a drink on that turntable. Why, you know? Why having a 3,000 euro turntable if someone's going to drop a drink on it or, like, there's going to be smoke in the club? So I think it's it's uh, definitely um, marketed to a different crowd. I mean, the, the parallel in the synthesizer world is clearly the uh, the Buchla, which has had kind of an unhappy story in the distancing of the two companies called Buchla and the, the passing of the founder in this past year. Um, but I did get to ask ask one of the Buchla salespeople who was who was who was buying these things. So these are a full modular system that's running something like twenty twenty five k. Almost bought one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that I mean that was a different case, and that it seemed to break down. He said, you know, some people were people with a lot of disposable income who kind of bought them. As a, as a hobby and then it's sort of you know hard to know what kind of music those people are making um, certainly you know maybe rich people can make good music too um, or, uh, <laughs> wealthy lawyers or whoever was buying the, the, those booklets uh, but um, yeah I mean there was at least a, a, a selection of people who were really dedicated musicians who just you know this was their big investment uh, exactly. because they were passionate about that it's just hard to imagine that that second group will exist with this particular techniques it seems just kind of uh, yeah like I said a you'll be surprised you know uh, you'll be surprised how many rich people are in the scene now um, I was like in a festival last weekend and uh, there are a lot of very extremely rich rich but like millionaires oh yeah no. well, I mean, uh, this <laughs> is part like of a, the a new kind of scene basically of like people that are getting aware of electronic music that are yeah they're, they have a different lifestyle than us they have private jets and all that stuff uh, I, I didn't even know it was my first time to see this yeah. actually and someone was explaining to me this the last few years it's been um, it's been like uh, yeah they, they are more aware of it and instead of like pop music they hear electronic music the new generation of really rich people from the Middle East and from America as well from everywhere basically and those people, I'm sure, will be a market for hardware, um, you know, uh, this, again, to the synthesizer market. Uh, I, I don't doubt that synthesizer manufacturers are, are selling to some of those folks, for sure, uh, which is good because we all have to eat and live. And if we can <laughs> convince the, if we can convince those people to part with some of their money, I, don't, uh, I think that's probably healthy for us, uh, just speaking <laughs> selfishly. But yeah, I mean, it seems like even then you might need some rational reason to buy the techniques, and I, I just honestly don't know that there is one, um, but maybe I'm missing something, maybe there is. The relationship that this hypothetical, you know, 60-year-old audiophile in his big leather chair 
listening to his um, vinyl reissues of the Beatles or whatever on his um, 3,000 euro uh, Technics turntable, that relationship to um, music is, you know, miles away from people who um, saw this turntable in the 70s and were like, oh, look, um, it starts and stops really quickly. Uh, the pitch is really accurate. And they use that to revolutionize music. Yeah. And so the difference between these two things is like quite telling. But yeah, is this just a case of, you know, businesses are going to be businesses and we can wring our fists at them, but there's nothing to be done about it? Or, you know, what's, what's the response to that? Yeah, I think definitely it's like a business thing. It's like a, a company probably... I mean, unfortunately, getting sitting down and looking for numbers and like accountants and saying that sometimes it is happens in club club life too. Uh, yeah, like making uh, sums and resting and saying, okay, this guy or this is gonna bring me more money and that's gonna bring us m more money per hours worked on this company and that's it. And there's no respect to other things. That's how a lot of things are working now, by numbers, by corporate, corporate things, parties, uh, events, DJs even. Mm. And there's just numbers. I think I'll be a little, I'm going to surprise myself and be a little more optimistic. And say, <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, the, this, this, this character of the audiophile has kind of been around with us since the beginning of Home Stereos. So, I mean, maybe the weirdest thing about this story, and I think the New York Times didn't really pick up on that, but the weirdest thing is that just as the, just as you would never expect that the uh, that this turntable would survive as a nameplate and as an icon from the 70s to now, given all of the other changes that have happened, you kind of wouldn't expect the audiophile as a breed to survive from the 70s until now. Uh, and yet, somehow, this person, who we keep describing as a 60-year-old man or whoever this person is, um, somehow this breed is still there, or at least, uh, uh, yeah, at least... Uh, at least the makers of the new 1200 believe that yeah, they there's have enough to of them to. out there for them to put their whole marketing campaign in their direction and you know have pay zero attention to you know the communities of people which made it an iconic product in the first place i guess it's just that irony is um the telling factor i guess access to vinyl and access to turntables now is about as good as it's as it's ever been and isn't in any significant way, I think, a, a limiting factor um, in people getting into DJing. So I think we can um, move on to the a different case, a different reissued iconic product. Uh, this one is from Roland. They have a line called the Boutique Range, um, and they've delivered classic instruments like the 909 drum machine and the 303 bass box, I guess you could call it, in a sort of portable, miniaturized, uh, somewhat affordable form. And the key points in the marketing of it is that it's a faithful recreation of the originals, which, you know, are literally the sound of house and techno. And it's there for making music whenever and wherever you want. But I guess the interesting thing for me personally is that, again, these machines at the time were essentially uh, failed to to live up to their remit. You know, to the ba the 303 was supposed to be the, an accompaniment for um, 
guitarist rehearsing without a bass player or something like this. And the drum machines were meant to sound like real drums, but they didn't. So, Peter, could you maybe talk a little bit about how these were originally marketed in the 80s? Because there was a gap of time between when they were released and when they became revolutionary instruments. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the 303 was, was really intended to sound like a bass guitar, and um, kind of everything about its architecture is, is wrong for that purpose. So um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really funny in that it is uh, just in terms of even uh, in terms of the kind of electrical design of it, it's, it's almost an assemblage of what might be viewed as flaws. You know? um, first, it doesn't sound anything like an electric guitar. Um, the, uh, we were just talking about this uh, with a friend of mine. The, um, the the accent is kind of broken, and as you add the accent, the, the instrument distorts. It has this weird squelchy filter. But I mean, I'm also describing all the things that have made it appealing, have made it last. You know, are, are these flaws? I mean, it sort of it failed at being one thing and sort of accidentally became something else that no one had seen before, no one had heard before, and. Uh, that sound is what's stayed with us. I think this kind of happens with, with all instrument design. If you create something new, you, you really won't know what it is uh, when you created it, and you certainly, certainly won't know who it's for. Um, so, you know, if you look at the early marketing for the 303, it's things like Oscar Peterson posing with one, and you know, the, the, you would have no idea you would have no idea who the market was for this thing that didn't exist previously it's a, because it's a new category or what the music would sound like because that's a new category too. Um, now we have the benefit of kind of living with this thing and I, I think what what we've come to appreciate it about is that there's something about the sound that's uh, really um, irresistible and universal somehow. Tiki, I know you've, you used to own a lot of the original versions of these instruments um, Not anymore, actually. I got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, I did. I did own the the nine on nine, the eight oh eight, profit five, <laughs> and things like that. Um, but uh, I didn't. You know, for me uh, as an artist, and it's just a personal uh, thing. I'm not looking to sound like a like a, a classic uh, house or a classic techno person. I'm always looking to sound like myself. So I don't really need these instruments for for that reasons. Just to for sound sources. Uh, so I'm quite detached. I was quite detached with my my classics and at one point I needed to sell and I sold and um, I think these great little things are fantastic to be honest I mean for me as an artist they're very good for life because they're portable and uh, as you know now space is uh, money <laughs> so the airlines are charging you for for space more and more and uh, the more equipment you have on your check-in the more risk you are going to lose them because it's electronic so it gets stuck on airports a lot now because of the they check this this equipment and sometimes you don't get them so it's very good for for us to travel with these little things on, on the hand luggage and they sound amazing but personally i'm not looking for an old school sound or i don't want to sound like um Mr. Fingers or someone like that with a classic, you know, because uh, I think that's that's beautiful, but uh, uh, it's not what I'm looking for. And um, 
And I honestly think some of them, I mean, I have the JP808, it doesn't sound like a Jupiter 8. Uh, it does sound great, but it doesn't sound like it. And um, so I think some of them, they're not so faithful to it. And some of them, they don't look so great, but I think they're great also for, for people, for new people to learn and for, for young people. I mean, when I was 20 and I started making music, um, this was this could be a dream, you know. I, I would never be able to afford anything like that, and and all. it was just crazy. It's just like I would never imagine something so small could have come out and so cheap, you know. So I think it's, it's a great and really positive thing. Uh, as a consumer, I mean, I'm a prosumer. Let's say I'm a professional consumer because it's for my profession, but for consumers as well. But you have the you have the JP08 and the yeah. I love it. I mean, uh, of course it has flaws. It's tiny, but I'm a girl, so my fingers are okay. But, uh, but some some of my boy f uh, man friends, they say the, the knobs are too small, which I understand. That could be something that it's very a no big no, but uh, I like it. And, and I think it's... Uh, yeah, it's great for life. And, and oh, not for life, only for the studio if you want to use hardware. Uh, now making music everywhere that's a little bit of a marketing thing i think because if you want to make music everywhere you can bring a laptop and you have everything as well but especially for people that want want a hardware it's great yeah do you i'm just curious do you have a do you have a different bass synthesizer that that um doesn't take the role of the uh 03 but does something else yeah i have a, a moog actually yeah Moog sub yeah okay that's also a nice um, example, the, the, the Model 5, you know, the new reissue, which is like very expensive as well, and uh, just like the original, basically. But it's, it really, it's really faithful as the original. I'm going to get in trouble with the Moog people for saying this, but I mean, I, I, I think I got a little bored of the, the Moog and actually kind of a bit bored of the Moog ladder filter. So that's really blasphemy. <laughs> like I'm I'm Catholic, but I'm just bored with communion. Um, <laughs> every single week. Uh, but no, I mean, um, I'm, that's kind of interesting. This 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 issue of sort of boredom. And so I mean, we have we have three kind of filter designs, right? That are really really popular. And that's the so the MS20, the uh, the the 303, and the and the Moog ladder filter. And it is—it's kind of funny how this—it seems to go in cycles for people. So some people who are, you know, have their original 303 won't give it up, and also uh, were initially resistant to this just because I think they have a kind of personal attachment to the fact that they've got the original. Um, some people who are big, big users of this instrument are totally bored with it and don't want to touch it again. Um, I, sometimes you sometimes you kind of expect it, and maybe I'll come around on the ladder filter again in some sort of cycle. But sometimes you expect to get bored with the sound, like ex expect to you know, like how many more acid tracks can I listen to in a row? And then and then somehow you you hear this thing and it gets under your skin again, and you have exactly the same reaction, even though that makes kind of no sense, right? Yeah, it makes you it makes you feel like home in a way. You know, like when you were young, and I mean, I'm not so young anymore. But <laughs> so it makes me go 20 years back and feel like I was in a party for the first or second or third time. And hearing this is like a chicken skin. How do you say in English? Like goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like so, it brings you back. You know, these these sounds and, and that's the beauty of it. I think. 
but then I, I mean, I, I suppose that's the other question for me. And you know, I, I mean, I had this conversation with you know chip musicians. A lot of people got into chip music who never played Nintendo video games. So that that for me was always kind of the disproof to this is just in the nostalgia. They seem to be certain instruments, and they all kind of grew up in the uh, a number of them grew up in the eighties. The chip music being one, the 303 coming from the 80s, and some of these other instruments, I guess we're talking 60s, 70s, but I'm not surprised by people who connect to it because it's a cultural signifier because of nostalgia. I guess I'm most interested, though, people who didn't come from that history who have the same emotional reaction. Yeah. Hearing it f without that memory. Um, and to me, the 303's ability to do that is somehow. There's something kind of vocal about it, right? There's something right. vocal about this yeah, filter. It's so it's connected. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you might be right, yeah. So I I mean I I said, you know, I think whatever the engineers at Roland did, it was a little bit like they discovered chocolate for the first time with this thing. And then once you, you know, once you have access to to chocolate, you kind of want to add it to everything, you know. <laughs> it's not <laughs> It's not like some. It's it's um. It's possible to overdose on chocolate, but it's it's really really hard, right? You know, yeah, and you when you find it, the right formula, it's like sometimes you hear a three hundred three track and it's like wow. You know, even if like I heard the three hundred three, I'm tired of it. And, but this track is wow, amazing. Or just like uh, makes you like cry. Or it's very emotional. As, as you said, it's probably the fact that feels quite human. Do you think it's a different? situation for an artist using an instrument where the history has been completely written it's like a cultural artifact um, yet when this was released people barely knew how to use it and it was considered like not even a real instrument um, so what's the equivalent of that original um, 303 situation in the present day. Peter, you were talking about them being marketed and not really knowing what it's for. Mistakes, like... Yeah. <clears throat> where, where is that line now? Because, you know, this whole thing that we're talking about is reassuring iconic instruments, yet what the, made them iconic was kind of their failure to live up to what they were supposed to do. Is that something which is confined to the past can that happen again now i think i mean maybe the op1 i think it's maybe one of the the instruments that is like kind of quirky and like i don't know what it is for but it works some people love it and yeah there's a few things like even even the octo track could be it's like crazily deep and could create like a like mistake it's like some they don't even know what they were doing but like for some reason it's like wow deep instruments uh, I think it, there is but in a much deeper way because of the technology of course uh, that time was ba more basic I think I think there is a there is a parallel yeah and I mean uh, there are a lot of new synthesizers so the, that that question I think is pretty easy to answer none of the companies are, uh, virtually none of the companies doing remakes have stopped making new stuff so, uh, you know, I think even Roland, uh, people don't talk much about the System 1, which is kind of their new weird entry in, in addition to, to uh, all this uh, circuit modeling of their old instruments. Um, but I really like the, the, the System 1. I think it's, it sounds kind of different from everything else. Um, 
Korg is in probably an even better example. You know, I mean, Korg just this week um, announced that they, whatever they're doing, the MS-20 in a new color. They're doing uh, they're doing a full-size uh, ARP Odyssey that's going to be hand-built in the USA. But they're still, in parallel to all of those kind of remakes, still making new stuff. And I think the, the whole Volca line has been really impressive in this um, and doesn't sound like stuff that's come before. Um, there's some new ideas in the, in the Volca and the uh, Minilog and the Monolog. Um, and that's just Korg. Once you get into smaller makers, you get all kinds of weird stuff, and mistakes, and um, yeah. uh, strange decisions, and uh, you know, Eurorack stuff that's that's really really peculiar. Everything from the sound to the labels to the marketing uh, stuff that you would never imagine to sell, and that, that's selling out. Somebody did a Eurorack module that's actually full of dirt um and uh, uh that sold out i think within an hour or something you know there's there's so much and i mean physical dirt right like actual topsoil not not dirt sound i mean so it's kind of astounding how much stuff is out there the remakes seem to actually be driving more original stuff and the original stuff seems to be driving more remakes everybody's synthesizer appetite just kind of continues to grow somehow well, I think also like it's not only in electronic music because uh, I, I play guitar and the guitar world is the same. You know, you have the, for example, the Dan Electro guitars were sold in supermarkets for a hundred dollars or fifty dollars. I don't remember um, too, too long ago, and now they do them again because people, so many people use them and it became such a familiar sound, very thick, very, very nice. Um, that now they they remake it. They remake them every year, every two years, and now there are thousands which is like uh, not affordable for beginners you know so I think uh, it's uh, yeah in a, in a even fashion as well in a lot of markets like uh, in cosmetics there's a remake uh, it's like a culture in a way it's common so it's sort of indicative of the the time that we're living in that you know we get these refashioned uh, cultural um, artifacts with an increased price tag but I guess in the electronic music instrument world it sounds like things seem to be pretty good though even despite this um you know outcry in major publications about companies turning their backs on their legacies or people owning original 303s saying the new 303 isn't authentic and stuff like this so perhaps it's a case of you know making the best of the situation well, I mean, I, the funny thing is, I'm not sure Roland ever stopped trying to make the remake the 303. They just kept doing it wrong. Sorry, with apologies to Roland. I mean, um, so the joke that's been circulating is that Roland will do reissue of the MC 303, like this horrible like 90s boxes that you know. You gotta I love mean, those things. Oh, yeah, though. I remember those. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> there have been there have been literally now decades of Roland announcing that some product was going to kind of uh, receive the legacy of the 808 or the 909 or the 303. What's kind of astounding is that they finally, I I think, kind of gotten it right. I think. The, I think the Iris series are great. Um, I think the boutique are even a little more focused and will appeal to even more people. And um, and I think the the sound is is more or less right now too. Um, yeah. I think it's I think it's certainly good enough. Yeah. It's definitely good. Yeah. Even with those little plugs, it does it breaks through the club. You know, you you test it on live situations in the studio is different, but on live, it, yeah, it goes out and it goes out well. So it works. I, and I really kind of hope, I hope that what it leads to is more people playing live, that's sort of personally. Um, with I, hardware. With hardware. Well, I mean, just playing live, period. You know, I think um, 
I think the reality is a lot of people, um, a lot of people were, were, were playing the records who had never gotten the chance to kind of use the instrument because the original 303 has never been all that plentiful. There are not that many units of hardware out in the, out yeah. in the world. Um, and the sound, I think, is, is appealing to people, even whether or not they have kind of a um, context to, to have it appeal. You know, it's just something about it is like makes you want to play it. There's something about this instrument that seems to kind of take on a life of its own, where it almost sort of starts to play itself. And, um, and that's a really kind of cool feeling, sort of inspiring feeling. I think it's what we sort of strive for in synthesizer design. So I think the accessibility of this thing will lead a lot of people who had kind of traditionally only played records or only played CDJs, you know, they may go on and try to try to play with it live, which I think can only be a kind of positive. positive. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We need more live sets. <laughs> so thank you to Mark and especially thank you to Peter and Dinky who took the time to speak with us last week. The Owl will be back next month with another blend of documentaries, interviews, discussion, and other things besides. Until then, you can head to residentadvisor.net to find the Owl's full archive and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. Hi, I'm Mark Hoffman. 